Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and of course around the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Later on in the show, we're going to be talking with one of the featured speakers at the 404 Tech Meetup, which is happening this weekend. But first joining me is Niall Kitson, our editor-in-chief. Just to talk and have a coffee and a little yak about the stories that have been making news this week. And I suppose the first one is money. We always like to talk about money. We sure do. It's like or sex. lack thereof. Exactly. It's like sex. Those who don't have it talk about it the most. <laughs> I leave that right there. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so we've had uh, the whole story with uh, Apple and Ireland and the EU and taxes and 13 billion. Now Amazon are in for the same thing. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the Irish case there because I think we should double back on it after after discussing this. But yeah, a similar EU ruling to the one that affected Ireland a couple of months ago. Uh, Amazon apparently owe um, Luxembourg. 250 million euro for exactly the same reasons that Apple owe Ireland 13 billion euro. Sorry, the EU competition commissioner, um, Mark, oh God, I have to look up her name here because I've got it. It's a, it's <laughs> well, a, it's, no, I don't think anybody's going to blame you for having to look it, it up. I got it. It's, it's not Marguerite a name that Vestager. rolls off the tongue, I'm sure, or is top of mind. <laughs> Yeah, Marguerite Vestager. She's actually been an absolute champion. I mean, her her job is EU Competition Commissioner, so it's her it's her business to make sure that uh, everyone plays on a, a level playing field. And um, yeah, she's been calling the uh, multinationals to account, and it's not just the tech sector. I mean, you know, the likes of Starbucks and McDonald's and all these people are in line for this uh, the same treatment. Oh. But um, yeah, Amazon owed two hundred and fifty million to uh, Luxembourg. Um, but let's go back to Apple and the 13 billion over here, because you remember at the time you went, wonderful windfall. We've got such a problem with our public services. We've got such a terrible homeless problem. We could really do with this money to start making some headway into it. And um Europe said, OK, this is the ruling. You owe this. Apple said we were appealing it. And the government said, yeah, yeah, we're kind of on Apple's side with this. Yeah, let's let's appeal that as well. And in the meantime, let's do absolutely nothing about collecting it. I know that's so, that's not fair. They didn't do nothing. They uh, uh, they had a chat with the banks and said that they don't have to pay corporate tax for another 20 years. <laughs> so, so they were busy. <laughs> Right, right. Well, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the uh, EU is now looking at taking Ireland to the European uh, court for uh, not bothering to collect any of this money. Mm. Um, So the European Court of Justice is going to have an interesting case in the near future. Mm. You know, if we lose, we win. What's the problem? Apple is a trillion dollar company. Uh, I mean, Tim Tim Cook at the time came out and said it was political crap. Apple can afford 13 billion if it means they're going to save billions. They can afford 13 billion right now. 
Well, I, I think actually, if you're just going to look at the numbers and compare the companies, you know, Apple, uh, the premium brand, uh, get to pay 13 billion, and Amazon, where you get all the bargains, only pay 250 million. <laughs> maybe Apple should reduce their prices. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Anyway, that's all high finance. And I think the interesting thing on the tech side of things, it's how uh, the real world, if you like, of accounting and governments and taxes is catching up with online businesses and, and globalization and stuff like that. So, rightly so. Interesting. Uh, tell me now, the uh, the Yahoo hack, uh, which I don't believe that I was affected by because it only uh, uh, hit a billion users and not everybody. Uh, there's been news on that. Oh, oh, Dusty. Poor naive Dusty. <laughs> <laughs> OK, you remember the timeline on this. Um, it emerged, what, last year, 2016, that Yahoo had suffered a very substantial data breach in 2013. And at the time, uh, Yahoo claimed that, you know, it was, yeah, a billion accounts were compromised because they'd been laggards in cybersecurity. And everyone went, God, a billion accounts, that's absolutely record breaking, like that's horrific. Um, it has now come out, um, seeing as Yahoo has been sold to Verizon. So they, they've been looking at, they've been looking at the books if you know what I mean, from a from a cybersecurity perspective. Because you remember um, Yahoo was going to be sold for a ridiculous amount of money, which came down to, uh, by its standards, modest amount of money. I, I think Microsoft's original bid was going to be 15 billion mm. back in 2007, 2008. Um, Steve Ballmer came out and said it was one of the biggest bullets he dodged in his entire life. Um and uh, Yahoo was eventually sold to Verizon for less than five billion. Uh, and even then, it's going to be all split up like it's basically mm. the properties will be going into Verizon and search was being handled by Microsoft anyway with Bing. So that's kind of been. And a lot of that was down out. to the fact that they had this massive hack of uh, uh, one billion accounts and uh, Verizon said, oh, you've got problems. We're knocking the price down to this. So they eventually yeah, I think they it. lost 400 million off the price from the hack alone. So they bought it at a reduced price. Price, uh, and now that they are the new owners, uh, what have they discovered? Yeah, well, it's not so much discovered, I think. I think they, they've just come out and said it that, you know, if you had a Yahoo account, uh, it's not a matter of worrying whether you're in the one billion. No, all three billion accounts were hacked. This is the biggest hack in history. Three billion. And they sat on it for three years. And you give out to me when I get all paranoid about giving my details to people online. Well, yeah, there there is that. I thank will, you. Will thank you. Thank you very in much. In this case, <laughs> having your tinfoil hat on would have helped. Well, now, speaking, uh, speaking of tinfoil, which is my browser of choice on the phone for accessing Facebook, uh, they're also making the news this week. Uh, once again, yeah, um, we remember uh, we've been tracking the story of fake news for quite a while now. You might remember earlier this year there was accusations that um, the presidential election, the US presidential election last year was manipulated by fake news, stories being generated by uh, outside interests, usually linked to, to Russia, we are finding now, but also uh, this tiny little village in, I, th- I think it was Latvia or Lithuania or something like that, where there was a couple of kids were just inventing stories all day long, posting them to Facebook and making thousands in ad revenue off them, just making stuff up, you know, the, the couple of kids in this tiny village. Um, now, uh, at the time, uh, Mark Zuckerberg came out and went, fake news, yeah, whatever, it doesn't really have an effect. 
Um, and now it's it's out, you know, it's like fake news. Okay, it, it happened. It was organized. We have evidence of Russian uh, money flowing into Facebook to post face, fake news stories to the benefit of Donald Trump. Um, there, the FBI is still getting to the bottom of it. Uh, generally, haven't been so happy with Facebook's response so far, because um, Facebook is just about getting around to saying, "Okay, yeah, this probably had an effect." We, yeah, they they paid their money, they got access to our platform. Uh, we're not entirely sure what we can do about it. Um, I think the one thing that they could do is just to start doing educating people about what fake news is. And that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. But if you look at what we do in, in media team, we have print publications and, you know, ads come in, but we know who they're coming in from. We have commercial relationships with these guys. We can vet what they're doing. So they, they can't just place ads anywhere. We've got, we're regulated by the, um, uh, by the advertising uh, authority in Ireland, of course. Yes, same as radio. Yep. Uh, that we can't put anything in our magazines if we so wish. We can't put anything up on Tech Central just because somebody is paying our bills. We're mm. accountable. Facebook isn't. None of the none of this none of, none of the big digital companies are, um, and this is going to become a serious serious problem. Uh, I, one of the one of the news stories that uh, emerged today. I mean, as we all know, Donald Trump was ultimately elected by a margin of twenty two thousand votes across three states, and we are now finding out that um, these three states. I think it was what Massachusetts, Minnesota. Um, can't remember the third one. Anyway, these three states were flooded with um, fake news um, distributed by by Russian accounts. So, uh, whether and, and you know, did we talk about Cambridge Analytica when that came out? That they were basically able to harvest people's status updates on Facebook and analyze them for particular personality traits like neuroses, <laughs> that kind of thing. So they were able to target what ads they sent to which people based on the personalities they were presenting with. So if somebody was particularly neurotic, you would go full tinfoil hat and serve them a few stories that way. Uh, if somebody seemed a bit more reasonable, you, you would look to match their tone. You know, you, you just targeted people with such wow. granular accuracy. Mm. It was very scary. But, you know, can this account for 22,000 votes? Or, you know, did the Democrats just have a lousy candidate that lost them the election? Um, I know. I definitely think that the, uh, uh, that because any election is going to come down, you're going to have, it, it, say, 100% of people vote. All right. Okay. You're going they to don't, ha- but you, go on. You're going to have, say, 70 or sorry, 35% of people vote one way, 35% of people vote the other way. Uh, it's that remaining third who are kind of swinging. Uh, don't know who will vote for this. Yeah, I might try them or I might try them or whatever. They're the people that you need to target and to convince. And uh, yeah, the swing voter, I mean, in Ireland, the swing voter is, is the holy grail, really, because yeah. our politics is still quite tribal. However, what happened in the States is that there's such a low turnout. Um, I think it's only 50% turnout for the last uh, election. Mm. And what you want to do is you want to get a side that will organise. And apparently conservatives organise better than liberals. 
So, which is why older people vote more because they're they're naturally more conservative. Mm. Um, so, you're looking at an organisational problem for liberals straight off the bat because they're more likely to believe that their vote doesn't count. Well, of course, your vote always counts. You you always should go out and vote. So uh, that's probably if you can energize a conservative base, you're probably mm. more likely to get them out to vote than an energized liberal base. Because you remember some of the stuff for the Barack Obama's um, second uh, election. Uh, there were some wonderful ads came out, but you kind of have to wonder, like, did they actually have to put in this much effort uh, to get people out to vote? Mm. A, a superhuman effort to get people out to vote uh, uh, a lot of the times. It is interesting, though, how the world is changing and uh, technology arriving and uh, how people are using it and abusing it. Uh, speaking of fake news, kind of fake news, where were you earlier on this week? Uh, where did you arrive in on the Tom Petty story? Was it when he died or, oh, no, he's alive or, no, he's definitely dead? Yeah, d- d- this... Oddly enough, I saw Tom Petty only a couple of months ago. Uh, he played in Hyde Park in London and it was sort of a whim of a, a gig to go to because I wouldn't necessarily follow his music. But mm. it was just one of these weird things. Good gig? Um, fantastic gig, actually, supported by Stevie Nicks. Very good. Um, I, I thought it was a great day out. But um, yeah, it's just the it's lightning speed. I, I came across the story after it had been verified. So I knew what had happened because the statement from his manager had come out. But then I went to Facebook and somebody had published a story or posted a story and said, uh, previous story about Tom Petty, not accurate. And you had to change, check the time codes, you know, to yeah, see what story is. I know, I know, I know. How did, how did you get sucked in or not? Uh, because I, I just saw it as it was breaking on, uh, whatever night it was, Monday or Tuesday night. Um, and, uh, I just saw, oh no, oh, Tom Petty's dead. And everybody in the room is kind of, oh no, I really liked him, blah, blah. And we started watching one or two of his videos on, uh, on YouTube. And then like 20 minutes later, I'm going, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> I said, guess who's alive? And they went, who? <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. But it goes back to the old uh, adage of, you know, uh, it, it's not necessarily uh, correct to be first. It's it's more correct to be right. Yeah, I mean, that's anathema to the Internet. But yeah, you're right. There you go. All right. Listen, that's our look at the uh, uh, the news for this week. Niall, as always, keep, thanks for keeping us up to date. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Ireland's biggest tech meetup, 404, is taking place this weekend at the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, something we're looking forward to immensely. And Niall was looking to get a kind of a little bit of a preview because earlier this week he caught up with one of the featured speakers, Catherine Jarmo, to discuss her fascination with AI, art and Twitter poets, of all things, which could even be better than the real thing. We often talk about the role of AI in research and business, but not so much in art, which is a bit strange because art and technology have pretty much grown up together, um, especially since the the uh, printing press, I suppose. And uh, to talk about this relationship and how it has progressed, particularly in the last, um, what, 50, 60 years or so, I'm joined today by author data expert, Python advocate, Catherine Jarmel, who um, is also the founder of uh, Kajamistan as well. And uh, among her other talents, uh, she has been preparing a talk for this weekend at uh, 404 about the role of AI in art and particularly poetry. Now, I guess we'll go back to the 1950s and and 60s because this is sort of where your interest in the use of artificial intelligence in art kind of begins, but also where it kind of starts full stop, really, isn't it? 
Yeah. Um, so thanks for having me and inviting me here. And uh, yeah, indeed, we can definitely trace it back to the time where a lot of people were still talking about AI in the terms of cybernetics and uh, it was really being used by the government and in a lot of ways to to move forward military research. And then you have these artists who started to explore it and figure out how to program and how to generate some art themselves which is quite interesting. It's it's sort of a, an odd um, combination when you look at it on the surface because it, it's almost left brain right brain clashing because you know there there is this sort of the cliche idea that um, which is is it is it the artistic left brain and the logical right brain I'm sure I'm mixing those two up but you get the idea that you know, there there are these two aspects to to ourselves and and rarely do they meet so to see um, something based on algorithms applied into a, a creative sphere creative sphere. Uh, very unusual at the time. So who was actually embracing this idea? Yeah, so one of the first people that was working on this that I came across was Harold Cohen. And he was an artist, first and foremost. And he moved to San Diego, and he was working at a university. And he got introduced to some computer science folks. And he decided to basically do a Skillshare and teach them a few things about art history. And they would teach him how to code. And he ended up writing a program called Aaron that that he used for the next 30, 40 years um, iteratively to try and design paintings and colors and drawings. I mean, it started very rudimentary, but it's just interesting that, you know, here's this artist who decided to become a self-taught programmer to try and generate art. And we're looking at the kind of art that, that he was doing. We're, we're not talking about portraits here. No, no. Um, I mean, he started with just basically, could he get it to draw shapes um, and so forth? And then eventually, of course, over time, it progressed to be able to draw and generate, you know, pictures of uh, people's faces and people walking and doing things. So, yeah. So do you think uh, maybe at the time it was as much the novelty of the process that sort of kicked things off as, as maybe opposed to the, the actual quality of the art itself? Yeah, I definitely think that um, people or the artists that I've come across who are operating in that time were trying to explore, could they generate or design art with computers? At this time, a lot of uh, the graphical interfaces that we would imagine today, and especially programs like Photoshop and other artists, Illustrator and so forth, these were in nobody's mind. Um, sometimes you only had a terminal, right? So figuring out even ways to have the art then be displayable was in in and of its own uh, a, a challenge right yeah um and i guess just to bring it on a step forward i mean we already have at this stage the application of basic algorithms to create shapes and it's a it's a process that is is looked at as being you know certainly certainly novel and, and perhaps even unique for the time but what sort of hardware then gets integrated into it because it doesn't just stay on on the screen i mean there's plenty more to to get used to I'm looking uh, in particular at, say, printing technology. Yeah, so um, there was, at the time, there was a few different companies that were trying to release um, these draft printers, right? And uh, those, there's a few of the artists that started to explore with those and see, okay, what can we do if we have this printer, um, this drawing machine, what can we, you know, 
what can we draw with it from our code and writing some basic programming that would allow you to kind of design art with these initial um, draft printers that you are still in use today by artists. Yeah, I, I think we see them um, uh, used by architects a, lo- a lot as well. Do, do you think there's an element of, um, you know, people were, uh, well, artists were looking at things now uh, as opposed to being something purely functional as something that, you know, actually we, we can use this for something else to actually say something about the world uh, around us as opposed to just using it for, you know, blueprints or whatever. Indeed. And um, some of the really interesting conversations, if you follow these artists and then later, you know, 20 or 30 years later, they're saying, you know, the way that the computer developed uh, was built basically around, you know, work and business and those types of designs. But there was a series of sub communities, both um, primarily actually in continental Europe and the UK, and they were experimenting with what if a computer was completely different what if a computer was just a physics machine what if a computer was just a visualization machine and it's interesting that now i feel like people are starting to explore and think about okay what could we how could we use computers differently um and that was something that was a conversation a long time before so that's really interesting because that that speaks to sort of the roots of you know UX and design thinking that we're we're almost taking for granted today as as part of the process when it comes to web development. Um, we wouldn't really um, consider a part of hardware development, but I guess you could say the roots were there. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely like the even the idea of an operating system at that point in time was not necessarily set in stone. So, um, yeah, you could basically pull off everything and start again and say, okay, what if I made an art-driven operating system um, where everything is like a graphical interface and everything can can be used to draw? And I think we see that sometimes now in the way that we use apps or. Uh, the way that people are designing new ways to to utilize tablets and so forth. And and when people drill down into the importance of color and typography and this sort of thing, and, and the famous reason why Facebook's icon is that, you know, Facebook uses white and blue, they, these little things really do add up. And I guess, you know, adding sort of the artistic eye or the designer's eye to things, it totally has revolutionized um, how we use computers. But these things have applications in uh, in text as well. So um, when AI sort of, sort of I, I don't want to say quite proved itself, but when the applications were, were actually there, it was inevitable that we move from um, uh, images into language. So how exactly did that start to happen? Yeah, so I mean, the study of both neural networks as well as statistical methods to study language, you know, to understand language and perhaps generate new language has been going for quite a long time with a lot of success, actually. But, um, you know, kind of the bot revolution that we're seeing now um, is based off of uh, advances that were made in the, I would say, like a 2010 and beyond um, in applying these neural networks, these new larger um, and with a much much more expanded architecture neural networks and applying them to language. And that's how we're able to create bots now that can generate sensical language that can have some understanding of intent or purpose. Um, Sometimes useful, right? Um, Sometimes not. So you see people are sometimes screaming at their Siri, but at least, you know, something like Siri can exist. Whereas I think perhaps, you know, 10 years ago, that might not have been possible. 
One of the interesting things, I think, when you when you raise the example of Siri um, and, and it's, you know, Cortana and Amazon Echo and, and uh, etc., when you're looking at these uh, these services or whatever, it's kind of junk in, junk out. You need uh, you need good AI, you need good um, good voice recognition, and you also need a good bank of knowledge to back things up. Which is why Wikipedia can be so important to these things. When when you go for a direct question and answer, what sort of knowledge bank are we looking at when it comes to generating bots that um, you know have an artistic bent or or are poetic as the as the case is. Yeah, so um, a lot of people use uh, a particular type of network that uses an LSTM, which is a long short-term memory. And essentially what it tries to do with this type of network is kind of how humans learn to speak. It has certain things that will remember long-term and other things that are perhaps topical or short-term. And by training this within a particular author's voice, you can perhaps generate text that sounds like that author or that sounds like that particular topic. And so you're essentially training it on a, as much text as you can um, that has whatever artistic intent you're trying to portray. So potentially a poet that you like or a series of essays that you like, something like that. Okay, so uh, I, I guess we have to hear something at this say some classroom example to see if it's it's convincing. So, uh, have you got something for us there? Indeed. So this is uh, one of my favorite bots called Careoof, which is a mixture of Jack Carrick and Virginia Woolf. She was a blonde by the lamplit statues. I'm sure of it. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that, that, that brings to mind um, uh, what was that famous um, uh, poem? What was it? Um, Baby shoes for sale, never worn. I think, yeah. yeah, six six <laughs> words regarded as one of the uh, one of the pithiest poems uh, ever, and easy to remember, which is why I can do so. Um, have you got another one there? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, they're all fairly short um, because they're shared via. Twitter. Hmm. Uh, okay. She clutched his hand. Everybody was dead. He was barefoot. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this is, this is uh, Jack Kerouac and Virginia Woolf for you. Wow. That's, I'm, I'm, it's hard to know whether to be impressed or not because you don't know, you know, it, it, you like to think that the artistic impulse is, you know, unique to humanity and there's this, you know, spark that can't be, can't be recreated, but it can kind of be replicated, can't it? Yeah, there's a really interesting quote on this and it's by one of the initial artists and uh, the initial algorithmic artists for visual art. And he said, uh, his name is George Nies, uh, Georg Nies, sorry. And he said, uh, it's not really art, is it? And he's German, so he said, it's Künstliche Kunst. And that means artificial art. Like, it's not quite art, but you can tell that it wants to be art. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there is an interesting um, case to compare it up against because there is a film called Morgan. I think it was released either la late last year or earlier this year. And um, the trailer for it was edited together by IBM Watson. And the way they described the process was they said, we, we basically sent Watson to film school. And if you watch yeah. the trailer, you can yeah. see the high points are there. It's perfectly replicated. 
And, you know, who would complain if that's if if that was, you know, a person or a, a robot behind it, because the purpose of it is to sell. When you look at something that purports to be a poem where if a person does it, the, the goal is maybe to illuminate or, you know, to give insight into something compared to a bot. It's it's a totally different motivation. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's some of the art that's happening by artists using these types of techniques now is really also um, reflective of this. Um, for example, there was an installation that that's literally titled LSTM um, by an artist that I'll be talking about this weekend, and he, he trained all of the, he trained the networks only on text about futurism. So this whole idea of like singularity and we're going to become one with the machine and all of these things. And I think that that was an interesting statement to, to make with, uh, you know, uh, using a neural network to generate text is uh, have it be about, you know, futurism and singularity and, you know, this type these types of ideas. I think it creates a wonderful opportunity for mashups as well. I mean, you, you wonder, you know, what would what would Gilgamesh be like if it was rewritten by uh, Irving Welch or something? like that <laughs> yeah 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 there's so uh, there's a lot of people playing around of course artistically but then uh in visual art but also now in in text of uh how could we talk about this topic in a completely different voice so so if we want to go looking for um some artistic bots you, you mentioned um that they're they're kind of mostly on twitter at the moment would that be right yeah, so um, there's definitely quite a lot happening on Twitter, but there's also many, many different installations. And um, for example, the last Ars Electronica, the one that happened, I guess, only a month or two ago, um, the entire theme of the whole art festival this year was about artificial intelligence. And they had quite a lot of different installations and interactive exhibits. So I feel like there's also a lot happening in the art world that you you can simply just look around and find galleries near you and see if anybody's talking about algorithmic art or generative art from these networks. And I think that there's quite a lot happening in that space. And that was Catherine Jarmo. And as Nod said, you can find out more about her and 404 in general at their website, which is brilliant, 404. Now, just before we go this week, Nile is still with us. What's our one more thing, the one story on the website that we just couldn't squeeze into the uh, show this week? Yeah, well, are you an Edge user, Dusty? I'm not, no. Yeah, well, there could be a very good reason for that, and we explore one of them on Tech Central. Of course, you get more on that and all the Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters, and more on our website, techcentral.ie, as well as our weekly tech radio show here online and broadcast every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty, and from Nile Kitson at Tech Central HQ, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.